As we say in Philly, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> it's uh, great to be with you on this beautiful, balmy spring day in Bedstuy. Well, I want to get you to think about three of the most important words ever written. These words are the source of your hope and your help whether you know it or not. These three words, every human being who has ever taken a breath needs, whether they know it or not. These three words will turn your life upside down and rebuild it again. These words will do surgery on your sick heart. I love, love, love the privilege I have of talking about these three words. I want you to turn in your Bibles or your iPhone or iPad or whatever weird, sad, off-brand you're carrying <laughs> to the book of Jonah. You got you to gotta ask yourself the question, why is Jonah in the Bible? This weird story of this prophet and this great fish. It's listed among the prophets, but there's almost no prophecy in Jonah at all. It's 48 verses of this weird story. And I think that Jonah is in the Bible because the, an entire biblical worldview is captured in Jonah in a podcast. That in these 48 verses, God points you to all of the major themes that are in the entirety of Scripture. It's really amazing. Uh, I said earlier that I'm a writer, and as I read Jonah, I want to never write again. Because the economy of the words, the ability of this story and the way the story is told to capture the dominant themes of Scripture is just magnificent. And we're going to look at the whole book today. It's only 48 verses. Uh, you have time. <laughs> if you don't make it. Uh, Jonah presents to us a God of incalculable glory. The, the, the picture of the glory of God we're going to see in Jonah is just mind-boggling. Jonah presents to us a world that's terribly broken by sin. Both sin personal and sin cultural and corporate. Jonah presents to us the magnificence of God's pursuant, rescuing, transforming grace. And Jonah confronts us with the fact that we were created, we were designed, we were put on earth to live for something bigger than us. Man, if you have those four themes in your life, if you live out of those four themes, you'll be okay. It's all there in, in Jonah. I'd like you to... Begin with me by looking at the first three verses of Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, you know the story. God calls Jonah to carry his message to one of the largest cities on earth at that point in time. And rather than obeying God, Jonah turns and runs in the other direction. If you understand Jonah's understanding of the geography of the world in his day, Tarshish was on the other side of the world to him. He was running from God as far as he could run. And I love how specific the word of God is. You ought to pay attention to every single word in the word of God because every word has prominence and importance. God, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has retained every single word for you because the words are important. It says here that Jonah's intention was to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, you know right away that Jonah is in the middle of spiritual insanity. He's spiritually crazy. Because as David would say in Psalm 139, there's nowhere you can go up above, down below, or horizontally and ever escape the presence of God. There is no situation, no location, no circumstance that you could ever go to and escape God's presence. If you are running from God, you are saying insane things to yourself. There's another thing that you need to observe. Part of that insanity is our perverse ability to make ourselves think that what is not good will somehow turn out okay. What was he thinking? What did Jonah tell himself was the end of this story? Where did he think this story was going to go? God was going to say, that's okay. Whatever. Now, you ready for me to hurt your feelings? Well, I'm going to. It's my job. Listen. Don't be too hard on Jonah. Because you run from God too. In fact, I would argue that everybody in this room somehow, some way, this very week ran from God. And here's what you need to understand. Running from God is seldom a matter of change of location. You can be in the exact location that you were before and be running from God. If you're a husband and you're up in your wife's face, and you're saying unkind things to her because somehow, some way, she's gotten in the way of something that you want. You're not doing that because you're ignorant of the fact that that's wrong. You're doing it that moment because you don't give a rip what is wrong because there's something you want from that woman and you're going to do whatever is necessary to get it. You are running from God. And in that moment, you're committing an act of spiritual insanity. Where do you think that's going to go? That will never produce love in the relationship. It will never produce tenderness. It will never produce unity. It will never produce understanding. It will never produce the good thing that everybody wants in their marriage. You are telling yourself that it was what is not good will turn out good some way. You are spiritually insane. If you're looking at a website that you have no business looking at, that will pollute your mind and destroy your soul. 
You're not doing that because you don't know that that's wrong. You're doing that because you don't care what's wrong. You've taken control of your own life. You've announced your own personal sovereignty. You will write your own rules because that's what you want to do at the moment. That's an act of spiritual insanity. You're running from God. Where do you think that's going to go? How will that ever produce good in your heart and life? If you're on your cell phone and you're gossiping about somebody in your life, you're carrying a tale that should be kept private, but you love the scintillating power of carrying that secret to somebody else, you're not doing that because you're ignorant of the fact that's wrong. You're doing that because at that moment you don't care what is wrong, and you're doing something that's destructive to you, it's destructive to to that person it's destructive to the community of Christ it will never produce anything good you are committing an act of spiritual insanity where this week did you run from God where this week did you give yourself in thought word desire or action to what God would say is insane see let's be humble here we don't need just to be rescued from the insanity of the surrounding culture we need to be rescued from the insanity that lives inside of our own hearts own it cry out for help Jonah is in the Bible not so we would say, well, I would never do that. I would never run from God. Jonah's in the Bible, she would say, that's me. I'm a runner. And my only hope is rescuing grace. You see why that's your only hope? Because you can run from a situation, you can run from a location, you can run from a circumstance, but you can't run from you. I found that every time I try to run from me, I show up with me at the end of the run. <laughs> and so that's why we need rescuing grace. Because there's no danger so great as the danger that you are to you. Because as long as sin still lives inside of us, I include myself in this. There are pockets of that deceitful, seductive, deceptive insanity inside of me. I need help. Now these three words. Before I give you these three words, I want to make a confession. It was I, if I was the person in charge of the story of Jonah, it would only have been three verses long. You run from me, you're done. It's not like I don't have enough prophets. Right? I got plenty of prophets. It's over. You're done. But the glory of Jonah is God's not like me. And the unrelenting, patient mercy of God in this 48 verses is literally mind-boggling. Here's the three words. But the Lord. But the Lord. But the Lord, but the Lord. You should celebrate the glory and the essentiality of the divine interruption. God will interrupt your life 
in order to promote His grace. Don't ask for your life to be comfortable. You don't want a comfortable life. A comfortable life, apart from divine interruption, is a curse. Listen. I mean, be serious about your life. If God is working on your comfort, He's a miserable failure. It's not what He's after. God will interrupt your day. He'll interrupt your morning. He'll interrupt your, your schedule. He'll interrupt your plans. He'll stick a straight pin into your, the balloon of your dreams. Not because He's punishing you, but because He loves you and He wants more for you than you want for yourself. But the Lord, but the Lord, there wouldn't have been any redemptive story. But the Lord, there wouldn't have been an incarnation. But the Lord, there wouldn't have been a cross. But the Lord, there wouldn't have been a, re a resurrection. But the Lord, there wouldn't be an eternity. But the Lord, you wouldn't know Him. But the Lord, you wouldn't love His gospel. But the Lord, you wouldn't have a Bible in your hands. But the Lord, you wouldn't be here this morning. But the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord. Don't curse His interruptions or your hope. You're not going to get your own way. You're not going to get your own plan. You're not going to always get your own schedule. You're not going to get your own comfort because God loves you. It's going to interrupt you. It's going to take you where you hadn't planned to go. Jonah had a plan. He was obviously committed to his plan. <laughs> but the Lord. God had a better plan. And God... Sends a storm. You're immediately confronted with the specificity of the glory of the sovereignty of God. That God is so intent on moving the life of one single human being. Get this. This is not moving the life of a nation. This is not moving history at this point. Jonah will move and history won't change at all. It's just Jonah that he will marshal a storm, a physical storm, in order to turn the direction of this man, in order to get at his heart, in order to get him in line with his plan. One person. It's mind-boggling. Now here's why that's important. I want to give you a piece of theology. I don't think this theology is often preached as much as it should be. It's going to cause you to think for a moment. Hear what I'm about to say. The reliability of the promises of God to you is only as good as the extent of His sovereignty. Let me say that again. The reliability of God's promises to you is only as good as the extent of his sovereignty. He can only guarantee the delivery of his promises over in the circumstances over which he is in control. Right? I can, I can guarantee some things in my house because I have some control there. I can't guarantee them on houses three doors down because I have no control. You cannot separate the sovereignty of God from the promises of God because if God is not sovereign, we have no hope that His promises will be delivered. It upsets me 
when I see people celebrating God's promises and struggling with His sovereignty. You cannot separate the two. Because if God is not absolutely sovereign over every circumstance in which we exist, we cannot then rest in the surety of His word to us. That's why it's recorded that if God intends to get at the life of one man, because God rules physical creation, he can marshal physical creation to do something significant to turn the story of this man. Isn't that amazing? One man. Now, I, I do this too. I'm not just picking on you. I'm picking on me too. But we just read Scripture sort of with a, with a mental monotone and we miss the grandeur of this stuff. Slow down. Pay attention to the words. Wonder why that's recorded for you. And I want to say this. Because of the majesty of the theology that's presented in 48 verses here, because it is a biblical worldview and a podcast, you should read Jonah at least once a year. It's 48 verses. It will take you less time than watching Homeland or whatever. And, and allow your heart to wonder at the words that are being presented to you. And you know what happens? The, the guys in the boat are terrified because of the storm. You see, they don't have a biblical worldview to explain what they're dealing with. Isn't that sad? Most of the people that you live around, this is why you ought to care and you ought to evangelize people, they do not have a biblical worldview to explain what's happening in their lives. They just don't. And you ought to feel bad for these guys. These guys are scrambling. They have no idea what is going on and why it's going on. And they're throwing things off the boat and Jonah's down there sleeping and they, they finally dis discover him and they're going to cast lots to, to see who's at fault. These guys are just, just grabbing for anything. And when they get to Jonah and they wake him up, they want to know who he is, where he's from. Just identify yourself. And I want to read Jonah's response. Again, pay attention to the words here. They're crucial and specific. He says, this is verse 9. And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Now that should sound strange to you. Do you get it? Why should that come across as very strange? You can talk, it's legal. There you go. It doesn't look at all like this man fears the Lord. Now what you're confronted with, and it's very important to, to notice this, is the huge gap in Jonah's life, stay with me, between his cultural confessional theology and his functional theology. I was going to say at street level, but that doesn't work here. It's actually at sea level. That gap 
between the formal confession of who he is and what he believes and the way he's actually living his life where the rubber actually meets the road in everyday life. Now let me say this to you. That gap between your formal theology and your functional theology is a workroom for the enemy. Don't think you're okay because your outline is okay. Don't think you're okay because you're theologically knowledgeable. Don't think you're okay because you're biblically literate. Because theology, hear me say this, is never an end in itself. Theology is a means to an end, and the end is a holy, transformed life. You can feel my passion. Because it's me too. There are moments when you look at a snapshot of Paul's life and you wouldn't think that I rest in the Lord. That I have faith in his sovereignty. That I love his will more than I love my will. And you too. And I want to say something to you that I think or some of you will sound radical, but I think it's absolutely true and, and we need to hold on to it. The enemy of your soul will give you your formal theology if he can capture your heart. Can I say this? I don't know why I'm asking permission. I'm about to. There will be knowledgeable, knowledgeable theologians in hell. If that statement of, Joseph, of Jonah doesn't frighten you, you're not listening. Because it depicts for us what happens to us. Faith is not something you do with your brain. Faith is something you do with your heart that transforms the way you live your life. What is the definition of faith in Hebrews? You must believe that he is. That's Conceptual belief, and he rewards those who seek him. That's life stuff. How shocking is it that this runner announced himself as one who fears the Lord? Shocking. Well, the lots fall on Jonah and all these, though these guys don't want to do it. They try to row in the other direction. Poor guys, they just don't know what's happening. They don't know who they're dealing with. I mean, you probably can't outrow God. Doesn't seem like a real good plan. Uh, and Jonah says, throw me in the water. They don't want to do that. They finally do that. And you just, you just think that's, that's the end of the story. He ran, storm came, he got tossed, he drowned. We move on to prophet two. <laughs> but it's not. Look at what it says here. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord, I love, again, the specificity of the words. The Lord appointed a great fish. I mean, how many fish in the sea are there? That, that God has the power and ability 
to appoint a single one of his creatures to do his bidding in order to get at the heart of one person made in his image. Now, here's what you have to do. It's very, very important for me to say this. You have to press through your cynical, scientific view of life to tell yourself that this is history. Are you with me? There's no indication anywhere in Jonah that this is an allegory. It's not announced to you as an allegory. When you read Revelation, the visions in Revelation are clearly visions. This is not what this is. This is recounting history. Now, this is what's important about this. If what God says is historical didn't actually happen, if the history of the Word of God isn't accurate, accurate and trustworthy, then how can we ever trust the gospel that is rooted in that history? And what, what is happening here is beautiful for us is God is pulling back the curtains of the mystery of His sovereignty so we can see how He actually works. Now, I want to say this to you. And I think by the time I get done, you'll understand what I'm about to say. You should not look at this, this fish moment, as being abnormal. This is God's normal way of working. God will marshal what is necessary to promote His work in the lives of His children. You will look back someday and you will see fish-like things in your life that God in sovereignty marshaled in order to do His work on you. Our, we look at this as being an abnormal because we struggle to have a biblical view of life. This is the regular way God works. God always will do what is necessary because He controls His creation and holds it together to get at the lives of His people to promote His promises in them so that what will happen in them, will, what He has promised will happen in them will actually happen. This is normal grace. Are you with me? This is normal grace. If you read Jonah... As extraordinary, you miss the whole point of Jonah. Does that make sense to you? Because what God is saying is, look what I do for you. It's all of us. The problem is, if you had been Jonah, you wouldn't have known that either. I mean, I can't imagine what was going on in Jonah's mind as he's floating around digestive juices inside of a fish. That would feel pretty extraordinary. But it's normal for God to do what is necessary, and He has control over it all. And so there is no tool that would not compromise His holiness that is not available to Him to get at you. Isn't that beautiful? He got a real big toolbox. It's normal. Now, here's where we go. We go, that's just chapter one. <laughs> Lord, help us. Uh, now, chapter two. What you get in chapter two is you get the eavesdrop on God's work in a man's heart. 
because you get to hear Jonah's prayer, the private moment between Jonah and God. And what this prayer does, it depicts God's ability to transform the condition of a man's heart. Now, I don't mean by that that the end of that Jonah's perfect because he's not. Because you'll see the rest of the book, this man's far from finished. But there's movement that takes place. Now, notice again, specificity of words. Notice where Jonah starts. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. That word distress ought to jump off the page. That is a passive, self-excusing way of talking about the mess this man had gotten himself into. I was in distress, and I cried out to the Lord. That sounds so spiritual. This wasn't distress. There's a name for this, rebellion. I mean, even in prayer, you can say euphemistic things that take away your responsibility, that tell yourself you don't actually need the grace you're praying for. I mean, come on. This is not some storm that he just sort of happened on. The whole thing is a result of a direct refusal to answer the call of God. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. That's what you pray. I, I, it's distressing when you... When, when, we, when we give ourselves to those euphemistic kinds of things, those, those self-excusing ways of talking about life, well, the problems were many this week, but the Lord was faithful. <laughs> what does that mean? That means I was an angry human being because I didn't get my way. I did all kinds of bad things. Confession. Honest confession of what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life. You know, prayer is not always a pure response of surrender to God. In fact, there are things that we do in, in prayer that are actually not Godward, even though prayer seems like a Godward action. I mean, for example, don't rehearse your prayers before you pray them. Like, dear Heavenly Father, that's not good enough. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, no. Oh, most holy, gracious Heavenly Father. God hears the rehearsal. Who are you doing that for? You're doing that to make yourself feel spiritual as you come to God who knows the difference. He's not fooled. Why would you do that? Because you are actually owning prayer as belonging to you about your glory, not God's glory. Can I say this? That's idolatrous prayer. The thing that we would think is a cl the most clear act of worship in our lives can actually be idolatrous. 
Or, or why would you rehearse your prayer before you pray publicly? You're not doing that for God. You're doing that because you're, gonna, you're a glory thief. You're going to take the glory of God away and you'll use prayer as a way of aggrandizing yourself in the eyes of the person next to you. How idolatrous is that? That's you in the center of your world. I've got to talk about this. Listen, the idol of idols is the idol of self. It's the idol that initiates and stimulates all other forms of idolatry. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus came so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. You see, if I make it about all about me, if I shrink the life, my life down to the size of my wants, my needs, my feelings, I have no defense against all of the horizontal idols that will seem to deliver to me what I want. It's only when I'm willing to pray this scary prayer, the one that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done right here, right now in my life as it is in heaven that I now have a heart that has defense against all the idols that would seek to seduce me. Because I again and again say, that's not what I want. That's not what I hope. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. My hope is you and you alone. Nothing will satisfy my heart but you. Listen, earth will never be your savior. Because your Savior is your Savior. Every good thing on earth is just a finger to point you to the one who would satisfy your heart. Oh man, we need to pray that God would deliver us from the idolatry of prayer. Now at the end, you see Jonah getting that. He says, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. I don't think at this point Jonah is talking about religious or cultural idolatry. I think that's a confession of his heart. He's talking about heart idolatry. He's getting something. He's getting what was the point in the beginning. Your life doesn't belong to you. Taking your life in your own hands won't go any, anywhere good. If you take your life in your hands, you forfeit God's steadfast love. Hear this. The magnificent love of God will not bow its knee to your sovereignty. Because His sovereignty is the only hope of that love doing its work. Now, I adore all of the Bible, but I adore what happens next. I love this. And the word of the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. We have biblical reason for discussing the vomit of grace. <laughs> Listen, we have too limited a view of what grace God, God's grace looks like. 
God's grace is not always comfortable. It's not always beautiful. It doesn't always look nice. It doesn't always smell nice. Smell nice. Sometimes God's grace looks like puke. You heard it here first. And that's why we need to teach, preach, and encourage one another with the theology of uncomfortable grace. Because often God's grace comes to us in, in hard, weird, distasteful, unexpected forms because that's exactly the grace that we need. No puke, no redemption for this man. It's true. Now, this week, when somebody wasn't here, ask you what the sermon was about, don't just say the vomit of grace. <laughs> you got to put it in context. But this is magnificent. Uh, what's, your, what's your expectation of how grace will operate? I find this is true. I find people in moments crying out, where is the grace of God? And they're getting it. But it's not the grace of relief, and it's not the grace of release, because, because that's not what they need. It's this uncomfortable grace, because that grace rescues and transforms. Maybe there's a whole lot of more grace operating in your life than you think is operating. You just don't see it, because your definition of grace is less than biblical. I love Jonah. <laughs> oh, now we're at chapter 3. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I love this. I love this. Look, if, if the book would have ended with the vomit of grace, if that had been it, and God would have said, Listen, I preserved your life uh, because I'm a God of mercy and a God of grace. I've removed your penalty go free, that would have been amazing grace. But it should be mind-boggling to us that God would continue to use this man. And so, so you're confronted with two things with this first sentence. First, that the biblical story, the story of the gospel, is a story of fresh starts and new beginnings. Because we all run. We all do things we shouldn't do. We all contradict the things we say we believe. We all make regrettable choices. If you are 20 years old or 30 years old or 40 years old and you don't have regrets in your life, something is wrong with you. Of course we do. But God offers us in His grace fresh starts and new beginnings. You can't ever sin beyond the reach of God's grace. Now, that doesn't mean you ought to be casual with sin because sin is a horrible thing. But you ought to have that hope. There's no pit so deep of your sin that Jesus isn't deeper. And then what happens next is just the most amazing thing. It's Jonah begins to preach what he thinks is a negative message. It's not a negative message. It's a message of judgment. Now, stay with me here. If God announces 
judgment to you. He's not announcing it because he's going to judge you. He's announcing it because he's going to rescue you. Right? The announcement of judgment is always grace. Because if all God wanted to do is judge you, he wouldn't make the announcement. He'd just judge you. You get it? The warning of judgment is always grace. The, God's words of judgment are positive. They're not negative. Don't get upset at those warnings of judgment in Scripture. You're reading the warning because you're being loved. Because if he wanted to wipe you out, he has the ability. Just stay quiet and wiggle your finger. I'm done. There's a positive message. And under the positive message, by the sovereign grace of God, the entire city gives itself to faith. It says from the highest to the lowest, there was belief in Nineveh. Now that confronts us with another thing that's so important. God doesn't call us because we're able. You would think this is the, this is the last guy. This resistant man, this country boy being sent to a city, you would think, what was God thinking? God doesn't call you to his work because you're able, because you're, you're inherently uniquely able, because of your family, your personality, all that kind of stuff. God calls you to his work because he's able. I mean, think of the disciples. What a rag bag of losers. You have to look at those biographies and say, Jesus, what were you thinking? Listen, not one of those guys would ever qualify to be an intern at any church that you and I would respect. It's true. But Jesus could call those men because he was assured of the power and glory of the ability of his father. God's able. You see, you don't have to be able. You have to be willing. And God does extraordinary things through weak and bro broken people who are, who are willing. Just be willing. Our problem is not ability. Listen. The great spiritual struggle is not ability. The great spiritual struggle is willingness. That's where the war takes place. And listen, every person that you would make a hero in Scripture is a flawed person. The history shows you that they're flawed people. There's only one hero in Scripture. It's the Lord Almighty. Well, we get to chapter 4. And you think now Jonah would be celebrating what God had done, and he's actually angry. He basically says, God, I knew you'd do this. I knew that you would, you would forgive these people. And now you know what's going on in Jonah's heart. I've got to talk about this for a moment. Jonah is angry at God because Jonah doesn't love the people that God loves. He does not want God's goodness to fall on people because he doesn't have God's heart. Because there is deep prejudice in the heart of this man. It's impossible to escape the racial, ethnic prejudice that caused this man to run from God. If you have prejudice in your heart, there will be places 
where you will turn from and resist the will of God because you will not love the person that God loves. Listen. This man has just preached a message of grace and now is acting in his heart with injustice. You cannot preach the message. You cannot celebrate the message of God's grace without celebrating the message of his justice to all his creatures. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, justice and grace kiss. God would not compromise his justice in order to deliver his mercy. That's why Jesus had to die. The cross upholds the justice of God as much as it upholds the grace of God. You know, Jesus didn't make this bargain with the Lord. You know, Lord, let's just, let's just close our eyes and act like these people are okay and just accept them into our kingdom. No, 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 he didn't do that. Because God would never violate his law, his holy moral standard in order to deliver his grace. So you cannot, we cannot, we must not celebrate grace and close our eyes to injustice. We cannot celebrate grace and harbor prejudice in our hearts that cause us to resist the work of God's grace in people who are different than us. Well, God, Jonah's outside the city now pouting. It's just one big pout. And God creates a, a plant that's going to give him some shade. And he's under the shade. And he sort of likes the shade because Jonah's all about Jonah. And this is, this is the shocking extent of God's sovereignty. God appoints a worm. Yeah, it happened. He appoints a worm. I mean, how many billion worms are there? How did God get only one worm to listen? How didn't seven million worms come all at once? The invasion of the worms. Jonah 4. Uh, it's God's sovereignty. And God is, is creating a physical ob ob object lesson to get at the heart of Jonah because God hasn't given up yet in this man. How great is his patience? How unrelenting is his grace? And Jonah's mad. He's mad because the plant died. And God said, is it right for you to be angry about this one plant? And I shouldn't care about 120 lost souls in Nineveh? Are you ready for this? That's where the book ends. I, one of the things I love about Jonah is that it's a story without an end. There's no bow wrapped at the end of Jonah. There's no final conclusion because God is still at work and he will work and work and work and work till his work is done. God is still there. He's still being patient. He's still counseling this man. He's still working to see this man, to help this man to see his heart as he does in us. We are also in the middle of the story. And this week, God will exercise his sovereignty in order to get at your heart. He will interrupt your schedule and your plans and your comfort to get at your heart. He will marshal grace for you that looks like puke. He'll counsel you 
one more time because he's unrelenting in his mercy. I love that horrible moment on the cross because it gives me such hope. It's the moment of the greatest suffering of Jesus. And it wasn't physical. And all of his physical suffering, this was worse. It was the moment where the father turned his back on the son. It's one of the most poignant moments in all of biblical history as Jesus cries out in grief, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear this. Jesus took every microbe of your rejection so that in your moments of spiritual insanity, you would never again see the back of God's head. God has turned his face toward you, and he will not turn away. Doesn't ask you to be more mature than you are. He doesn't ask you to be more powerful than you are. He doesn't ask you to be able because he is able. He asks you to not run from him, but to run toward him. And to be so honest as to say that even in prayer, I'm an idolater. And I need your help. And I run to you. And Lord, don't help me never to think that running from you can go anywhere good. You're in the middle of the story. And his grace is still operating. And he will marshal what is necessary in his sovereignty to get at what is significant in your heart. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, what we want to say to you right now is wow, wow, wow. It's almost hard for us in one setting to, to grasp the magnitude of the message of this little collection of 48 verses. Thank you for the themes that are here. Thank you for the way they expose our hearts. But more than that, thank you for the way they instill in us hope in your sovereign grace. And thank you for Jesus who answered your call and didn't run, who ran toward his own death, who was willing to be separate from you so that we would be accepted by you. Thank you. Oh, we would pray that you would deliver us from us once again. That we may find our hope in you and you alone. We pray this, not just for us, but we pray this for the sake of your kingdom, for the sound of your glory. Oh, King, oh, Lamb, oh, Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.